0: The world in which we live is ever-changing. Things do not stay the same. We're well aware of that. Things are constantly changing and evolving. By the same token, there are some things that never change. One of those things is God's Word. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 89, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. A second thing that never changes... The character of God. God said through the prophet Malachi many, many years ago, I, the Lord, change not. And so we live in changing times. Things are always changing. Some of the changes that have taken place in our world have been very good. As a matter of fact, we have benefited from the changes that have been ongoing. But there are some things that have changed, and those things are not necessarily so good. One of the things that has changed in recent years has been the attitude by many towards sin. Unfortunately, there are a lot of folks that have shaped, molded in their minds, their conception of God. The problem is what many people perceive to be the character of God is flawed in many respects. God never changes and so when we look at the scriptures and we think about the question is God soft on sin? I think it's helpful for us to look at what the Bible has to say. How does God view sin? What does God think about sin in the world today? And so with that in mind I want to begin by first of all talking about what Jude has to say In verse 3, I want to begin here, and then we're going to look at verses 5 through 7 specifically. Jude said, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that he's talking about is not the personal faith that we have in the Lord but rather it is the faith that has been once for all delivered. We would call it the gospel, the truth, the word. You remember Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So God's word never changes. And there are always forces at work that seek to undermine the truth of Almighty God. It's incumbent on us as God's children to contend, For the faith that has been once for all revealed. And so first there is a probing of the mind by the writer here. Note if you would what is said in verse 5. But I want to remind you. Think for a minute about how helpful reminders are. Many of us we have calendars. When we have important dates to remember we will make a notation. The scriptures talk a lot about memorials or reminders. You can go back to the Old Testament, and I think about the institution of the Passover, and that would have reminded the children of Israel of their deliverance out of Egyptian bondage. The fact that God had, as he said in Exodus chapter 19, borne them on eagles' wings and brought them unto himself. So that was a helpful reminder and then in the New Testament, you remember when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He said concerning the bread, this do in remembrance of me. Relative to the bread and the cup, the fruit of the vine, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, As often as you eat this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you show forth the Lord's death till he comes. So every first day of the week, there is this powerful reminder of what Jesus did for us on Calvary. So reminders are necessary. They are essential. In our context, there are a couple of reasons why reminders are so important. One, so that we might avoid past troubles. Think about all the problems that have taken place in our world today. Somebody has said in the past that if we don't learn from the past, we are destined to repeat it. Another person said, and I've used this quotation on a number of occasions, if there's anything that we've ever learned from the past, it's that we haven't learned from the past. But Paul said concerning the Old Testament, whatsoever things were written before time were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so one of the reasons why we can look back and one of the reasons why we need to be reminded is so that we might avoid past troubles, in other words, problems, mistakes that people have made in the past. There is always the danger of forgetting. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about reminding those in the first century of the events that occurred on the mountaintop when he was transfigured before Peter James or rather, when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. In chapter 3, he wrote a second epistle to them. He said, so that he might stir up their pure minds by way of remembrance. And the reason was because there were scoffers that had arisen, asking the question, where is the promise of his coming? And so what Peter wanted to do was reinforce the idea that, look, the Lord is coming. He will come. A second reason. Why it's helpful to be reminded is so that we might accentuate present truths. One of the goals of preaching and teaching is to constantly remind people of old truths. When I was in school many years ago, one of my professors used to talk about cardinal doctrines of the New Testament. And by that, he simply was referring to those fundamental truths the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the distinctiveness of the church, the plan of salvation, the Lord's Supper, the various other acts of worship. All of these cardinal doctrines, we would call them fundamentals of the faith. And so we have to ingrain in the minds of people the truth of Almighty God. We have to encourage people to to study, to continue studying, to grow, as Peter would say, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Jude here says, I want to remind you. And there are a lot of times that people tend to forget important truths of the past. And so this is, as we would say, somewhat of a memorial, a reminder. There is a second thing I want to call attention to. It has to do with the personalities mentioned. Jude here is going to be very specific in reminding his readers of events that occurred in the past. And I want you to look at what he says in verse 5. I want to remind you, listen to him, though you once knew this, is it possible for us to forget? If we forget vital truths, then it's quite possible we're going to fail in our spiritual walk with Christ, isn't it? The things that Jude is going to talk about were matters that the average Jew would have had knowledge of. In other words, they had had the history of past events. And so he's going to begin by talking about the children of Israel. Listen to him in verse 5. This is going to take us back to the time when God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. He saved them out of the land of Egypt. He said, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, you remember back in Numbers chapter 13 when God sent out 12 spies under the authority of Moses When the spies returned, only two spies gave a favorable report, didn't they? The other ten were fearful of the giants in the land. As a result of their fear, because they were afraid, the Bible tells us that the children of Israel believed that report. And so they began to murmur and to complain and to ask the question, why would the Lord bring us out of the land of Egypt? It would have been better for us to have died in Egypt. Can you believe that? The very people that had cried out to God, that had shed tears, crying out for redemption, and then to turn around and say, well, it would have been better if we had died in the wilderness. How crazy was that? In Numbers chapter 14 and about verse 21, God said, speaking of the children of Israel, I will disinherit them. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, in recounting the unbelief of the people, here's what God said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Those who were 20 and above destined to die in the wilderness. And so God here is talking about the certainty of judgment that came upon the children of Israel because of their unbelief, because of their unfaithfulness. In the book of Jude, like Peter, he addresses the dangers associated with false teaching, false prophets. And he says, in effect, that just as certain as God rendered judgment on the children of Israel, on the angels who sinned, and on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he will one day judge those who teach or propagate false doctrine. For the purposes of our study, I want to ask the question, is God soft on sin? You go back and you look at the children of Israel and you see that they were dealt a fatal blow. They were judged. And then look at verse 6, the second illustration. The angels who did not keep their proper domain But left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Let me ask you to turn with me back to 2 Peter chapter 2. Because I want to to read for you what Peter has to say about this event. In verse 4, Peter said, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell. In the original, that word is Tatarus. It's spelled T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S. It is the abode of the unrighteous. When people die who are outside of Christ, who are living unrighteously, they go to the domain known as Tartarus. It is identified as a place of torment, Luke 16. Those who are righteous, however, those who are in Christ, living faithfully, They go to a place Jesus identified as paradise. You remember the thief on the cross. When he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And the Bible says that Jesus turned to him and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is the abode of the righteous. It is also identified by Jesus as Abraham's bosom in Luke 16 when he talks about the deaths of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man going to Tartarus to a place of torment, Lazarus going to paradise or Abraham's bosom. So the angels who sinned, God cast them down to to Tartarus, delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. I have looked at this verse several different ways. I've looked at what others have said about the angels who sinned. I know that angels are created beings based on Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. They are incorporeal beings. In other words, they are spirit beings. You can go back to the Old Testament and you can see that God used angels in a prolific way. In the New Testament, God used angelic beings. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 that they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. However, I say all of that to simply say exactly what the angels did to bring about their expulsion from heaven, I do not know. If someone were to ask me, can you explain exactly what they did, my response would be, I just don't know. It might be the case that down the road, after further study, maybe I'll know more certain about what transpired. But when I look at the scriptures... As far as I can tell, there's no record of it. I had a professor in graduate school, a professor that I looked, at, looked up to a great deal. His name was Rex Turner. I recall a class in which I had written a paper. And I took a different view. It had to do with the book of Revelation and the Roman Kings. And I took a, a different view than what Brother Turner believed. Brother Turner, in his wit and wisdom, said to me on one occasion after writing that paper, he said, let me tell you what. He said, why don't you study that for about the next 40 years and then let me know what you think. I've never forgotten that. I I told Brother Billy that. I've talked to him about that. And I have since said, you know what, he may have been right. Probably was right. But I I, I make that statement to simply say, that there are things that we have to dig deeply into their divine truths that are born out and there are some things that we just don't have an answer for I can't give an ironclad answer as to exactly what the angels did that brought about their expulsion from heaven I believe it though you can go back and look at the writings of Isaiah as well as Ezekiel and there seems to me to be a personification of the fall of Satan but I would leave that to your study and your conclusions There is a third illustration that is used by Jude. Look at verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over, now the New King James Version says to sexual immorality. Really, in the original that word is fornication. And they have gone after strange flesh and are set forth as an example Suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. You can go back to the book of Genesis chapters 18 and 19. And God, of course, reveals unto Abraham that which he's about to do. Abraham barters with God to save the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Unfortunately, the cities could not be saved because the people were wicked. And because they had given themselves over to a lifestyle that was perverse, to say the least. Go back and look at Genesis chapters 19 and 20, and you find out that the problem was homosexuality. And so God destroyed them. Genesis chapter 19 tells us that God rained brimstone and fire from heaven and destroyed those cities. So you have three very distinct illustrations used by Jude to show that God means business when it comes to judgment. There's a third thing I want you to see in our study. It has to do with the purpose. The purpose of this message. Why would Jude and Peter as well, why would they cite these instances well known to Hebrew readers? A couple of reasons. One, he wants God wants to make it crystal clear that when it comes to distorting His truth, there is a penalty to be paid. A second thing is that when it comes to sin, despite what a lot of folks think about sin, the watering down of sin in our society, the inspired writer is saying, God has not gone soft when it comes to this subject. I want you to think, first of all, about God's perspective concerning sin. How does God view sin? The Bible tells us that God loathes sin. That's spelled L-O-A-T-H-E-S. God detests sin, doesn't He? God is a holy being. There are no blemishes in the character of God. Do you recall in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah said he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the robe of his temple filled, or rather the robe, his robe, the train of his robe filled the temple? Those angelic beings, the cherubim, those angelic beings, they cried out, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. They spoke of the holiness of God. Isaiah, when he saw this, said in the long ago, Woe is me, for I am unclean. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So God detests sin in any shape, form, or fashion. The psalmist talks about how God hates the workers of iniquity, and I think really what he's saying is he hates the works of those who commit Iniquity. You see, God loathes, detests sin, but He loves the sinner, doesn't He? Peter said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The character of God is such, the nature of God is such, that He is described as a being of love. 1 John chapter 4, God is love. He is described as a being of great love, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. He has abundant mercy toward those of us who are part of the human family. And God has provisions in place for the salvation of the souls of people. God wants people to be saved. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God is interested in the souls of people. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God is interested in you. He's interested in me. He has done everything possible to save us. He sent His Son. He gave us His Word to guide, direct our steps here upon planet Earth. It all comes down to whether or not we will accept his terms of admission into the kingdom of God and live for him on a daily basis. So God's perspective of sin, God detests sin, he hates sin. As a matter of fact, if you look at Proverbs chapter 6, look at Proverbs chapter 6 very quickly. Some of the things that the writer speaks of, common to mankind but lending insight into God's view of sin. Verse 16, these six things the Lord hates. He said, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed, innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. God says these are things that he absolutely, unequivocally detests. He hates. They are an abomination to him. Has God changed in that respect? The answer is no. So God's perspective of sin and then secondly, God's penalty for sin. Will God deal with sin? Yes, He will. What is sin? Well, sin is identified in the original as a missing of the mark. Paul would say there's none righteous, no, not one in Romans chapter 3. In verse 23, he said, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. John said that sin is the transgression of the law in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. So God detests sin, and God will one day punish people for sin. The escape for the penalty of sin is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that can requite the scales of justice. That's why we have to be in Christ I mentioned a moment ago the penalty for sin, and we asked the question, is God soft on sin? I want you to go back again and look at 2 Peter chapter 2. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Peter said, Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to destruction, making them, listen to him, an example to those who afterward would live ungodliness, ungodly rather. Peter's saying, if you want to know how God deals with ungodly people, let me just give you an example of that. You go back to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you see how he dealt with those cities? That's how he deals with sin. Has he changed in that respect? Again, unequivocally, no. There are a lot of people in our world today, and this is just one example, that have bought into the gay agenda. And they today... Many, many people no longer find it a spiritual problem for someone to live in, quote, unquote, homosexuality. Because the laws of our land have been changed, it's now legal in every state for two people of the same sex to be married. What we have to understand is there is a lot of difference in the laws of the land and the law of God. The law of God trumps human law. It trumps any and every civil law. So while our country may give a pass to those who are living in homosexuality, and we might as well call it what it is, it's living in sin. Do we love those people? Yes, we do. Do we want them to be saved? Absolutely. How can they be saved? Do exactly what they did in the first century. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, the Bible tells us he spent, well, in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, the Bible says, many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. In verse 10, Luke said he spent some 18 months in the city of Corinth, teaching and preaching the gospel to those people. And the people in Corinth were living in paganism. They were idolatrous and they were immoral. And so here's what Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at it with me. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to read this because I think it's helpful for us to see it in black and white. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators fornicators. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Can I understand that? I can understand it. Can you understand what Paul said there? Do you understand it? You know what he's saying? He's saying if you live in fornication, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, if you're a thief... If you're a covetous person, if you're a drunkard, a reviler, an extortioner, he said, you're not going to heaven. That's as plain as plain can be. But here's, here's the hope. Verse 11, and such were some of you. When Paul went to the city of Corinth, he didn't wave those people off. He didn't kick them, kick them to the curb and say, you know what? They're so steeped in sin, there's no way they would be interested in Jesus didn't do that he saw an opportunity he saw somebody dying in a life of sin so the best thing he could do share the gospel verse 11 such were some of you but you were washed that is they were baptized into Christ why were they baptized into Christ so their sins might be remitted Acts 2 38 so that they might be washed away Acts twenty two sixteen. 16 so that they might be saved Mark 16 16 He said, you were sanctified, that is set apart, set apart from the world unto God. And then he said, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The Word of God doesn't change. The character of God does not change. So we ask the question, is God soft on sin? Here's what he said. You want to know what the penalty for sin is? Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. You live in sin, outside the covenant of God's redemptive power, based on His blood, you don't have a hope. You don't have, any, you don't have one hope. You are, as Paul said, without hope and without God in this world. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, he said, But you that once were far off, are brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the difference maker. So Jude here is saying, look, God will one day render judgment. We're all going to stand before the judge of all the earth. And as Abraham asked centuries ago, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He'll do what's right. The question is, are we right? Are we right with our God? Thank you for listening to The Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. while the billows roll, Fasten to the rock which cannot move,